Hey everyone, it's Mariah and Danny. Welcome to our podcast, Behind Behavior, where we take a look at the science behind behavior and how we actually use it in real life. Short disclaimer, nothing we say on this podcast in any way reflects the opinions of our employers or the BACB. All opinions are our own. Also, there may or may not be some explicit language in this episode. One of us tends to swear, and the other one usually doesn't. Join us to find out. Um, all right. Well, today we have Danny. I'm always here. We have somebody <laughs> else here too. You know, in my mind, I was like imagining, you know, like the crowd goes wild <sighs> noise. You could just plug that sound in, like that would be fine. PBD, we'll see. Anyways, <laughs> um the other individual joining us today is Dr. Shane Spiker. Hey, that's me. I'm stoked to be here. Uh, I, I can't even remember how this invite ended up happening, but here we are. I think you were just like, hey, do you want to be on? And I was like, I'll be on. That sounds great. And here we are. Sounds pretty close. I don't remember either. <laughs> but... <laughs> but we probably should introduce Shane a little bit for people who aren't familiar with Dr. Spiker and what he does in his work. So do you want to say a little like about yourself? I feel like uh, we're yeah. both cringing though when you say Dr. Spiker. <laughs> yeah, it's really painful for me. Um, just so like it's fine. I understand it. So, so uh I prefer to be called Shane, but if you call me Dr. Spiker, if that's what makes you feel comfortable, I'm totally fine with that too. So um, okay, where do I start? I am a behavior analyst. I've been a behavior analyst since 2011. I've been certified since 2011. Um, I mostly work with like severe behaviors. Uh, really, really severe, dangerous behavior and sexual behavior. So I work in that realm a lot, um, which is really funny because my email just looks like porn spam at this point in time with the <laughs> stuff that people email me, uh, mm-hmm. which is fine. It just is really funny. It's like, how can you help with masturbating? I'm like, I don't give me more context. I need, I need more um, <laughs> before I say yes. And then, um, and then I teach. So I teach at a couple places and um, I do CEUs and I do some podcasts. And so I do a lot of like, uh, I value dissemination a lot. So I do a lot of that work. That's, and I like coffee. So like, I guess maybe that's like the best introduction I could do. <laughs> I love that. It's the bill. Yeah. It's just who, that's who I am. So if you ever see me, like I probably have a cup of coffee and, and I, or a book, I, I read a lot. So I try to stay indoors and read and not deal with people. Which I think is actually how we met on Instagram. I was telling you like a book recommendation. Yes, I think that's exactly what it was, because I would just be like, here's what I'm reading. And you're like, you should read this. And I was like, yes. And we've been friends for like a year and a half now or something like that. And we just keep reading ever since. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't stop. The TBR list is never not a thing. No. Well, there was there was some study that said that like people that are surrounded by unread books are happier because they always have something to look forward to. Like there's always, it's something like that where it's, it's probably like weak science, but it was something that I thought was really interesting. Where it was like, Oh, then I should be much happier and not so anxious. But uh, yeah, it was a, uh, it was like a cool thing. I was like, yeah, I'm surrounded by books. I haven't read in forever. So this is great. I, I love that. that. Then. I feel like maybe I'm destroying my own happiness with like chugging through them all. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to display your unread books, Mariah, but only like still section your top 10 or whatever. So you're still surrounded. They're all generally in the same location unless they're in my office, which let's get real. Some of the stuff in my office isn't even read. <laughs> that's hey that's the same with me i've got a lot of behavior analytic books and, and when i tell people i don't think i've ever completed a book by skinner they get real upset i'm just like how could you like it's so dry it's right. it's rough <laughs> weren't you just reading walden danny and you were like fuck this by just you mean in 2021 i tried to read walden too <laughs> i got like maybe halfway through it and i haven't picked it up since <laughs> I mean, I he's not inspired. So then I it, bought a copy and I haven't looked at it. I, ever. yeah. Nah. I have several versions of Walden too, and I have never been able to finish it because I mean, let's, let's be honest for a second. Skinner is not really known for being a creative writer. No. 
And I think I finished Verbal Behavior, which is like, from what I understand, his most difficult book to read. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot. It's rough. You're better than me. I think I read maybe two pages of Verbal Behavior a couple years ago. Um, And that was it. (laughs) I had to do like some chapters just for my thesis stuff. But then I was like, I'm dipping out of this. (laughs) (laughs) It's I mean, it's he's so technical. It's just. You know, I heard I heard something really great. It was like people were putting like everybody puts Skinner up on a on a pedestal. And I am so appreciative of the work that he's done. Like, I definitely appreciate that. Um, But, you know, somebody was like, he's not producing new research. So why do people still like put him on that pedestal? Like, it's important to recognize the past, but like also recognize that our science is moving forward. And so Mm -hmm. for those those like traditional behavior analysts that are like really stuck on Skinner's work, you're like, okay, well, that's good. But we've advanced since then a little bit, at least so. Can you imagine yeah. if like the psychology field stuck with what Freud said and didn't keep going? It's coming back. <laughs> so like I learned, I learned this in my, like, uh, like towards the end of my, uh, to the word towards the end of my program, apparently like psychodynamics is coming back like really, really? hard. Like, really? yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, it's less about, it's less about dicks than it was before, but it is, it is definitely more um, like psychodynamic therapy is coming back in a, in a really strange way. Um, there was a really cool study that showed that psychodynamics and behaviorism are actually like more closely aligned than people realize. Um, and what they did was they found in the psychodynamic therapy, Therapy, that the parts that worked well in that were the behavioral parts. So there's some really cool, I, I used to get myself in trouble in my program because I would tell my supervisors, I'm like, actually, this is the thing that works. And they had to pull me aside and be like, I know you're the behaviorist. You've got to stop. So I had to <laughs> quiet myself for a minute. We can circle back to imposter syndrome because just like listening to you talk, Shane, like you sound super confident. And like I confronted my professors and I know all of this stuff. So like when Mariah said that you guys had talked about imposter syndrome and Shane was like I get that too I was like how he does all of the things he's like a noteworthy person in our field that's wild and so I'm gonna give you some insight on that when you say that I'm a noteworthy person in the field I immediately go no way that's not me like she's talking about somebody else like I can't it's it's all kinds of like verbal behavior around this. Like I, mm-hmm. I have, uh, it, it is very much. So I'm just waiting for somebody to figure me out. Like it mm-hmm. is a consistent thing that I struggle with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think part of it is I've learned that I have a skill where I can say something very confidently and sound like it's true. Um, I've learned about this about myself for, for some time. And then I will later go, why did I say that? Or why did that come up? Or why do people like believe that when I say that, I mean, it doesn't happen often when I'm talking about behavioral science, but it does happen. Like I could make up some crazy story and, um, and like I convinced, I convinced my wife that I couldn't swim for like three years by accident because I said it so confidently. I was like, I can't swim. Uh, and then jumped into a pool and freaked her out. And she was like, well, you can't, I was like, I, I live in Florida. Of course I can swim. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things where I said it so confidently that I was like, I didn't even think twice about it, you know, but, uh, I think that's probably part of it, but it's just like a, like, it's this weird splinter skill I have, but yeah, I struggle with, I struggle with it a lot. I worry that, um, I do worry that I'm saying the wrong thing. I worry that, um, I am maybe not as up to date on some stuff that I could be. I worry that like, especially in treatment, I were, I always kind of think about this where I'm like, somebody put me in charge of their kid, like of the, of the well being of their kid. Like I have a mustache tattooed on my finger and somebody thought that I was the responsible one in the room, you know? And I think part of that comes with like being young too. Like, I mean, I'm not young now, but like I got into the field when I was really young. So I'm 37 now and I've been in the, doing this for a while. But when I first started, I was in, I had a master's degree and I was in charge of people's kids in my twenties. And you're like, this is not, this is not for me. I should not be doing this. Who, who thinks that I'm responsible? And it's so, yeah, I absolutely struggle with it. So it's a real problem. I think especially in our field too, because like, at least in my experience, if you're a BCBA for like, um, like I work with people in group homes, if you're a BCBA for like a larger company, it's usually like, it's just you, you are the yeah. BCBA. <laughs> you're kind of there by yourself. Um, so yeah, it's definitely really intimidating for starting I, out. I'll echo that even on a small scale, doing my own consulting, be like, oh, it's just me okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I bring a lot of stuff to you and Shane or the cohort and be like all right what would you guys do or I'll reach out to my neighbors and stuff who are BCBAs and be like help me (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, do you, so like, how do you respond to that then? Like, so like, let's say like you come across a situation where you like, cause I, I know how I respond, but I'm just curious, like if you're experiencing imposter syndrome, what does it look like for you guys? Like for me, it's, it's, I'll make a decision and I question that decision until like it gets confirmed by like 20 or 30 people. And even then I'm like, no, there's no way that's me. Yeah. For me, it's really similar. And it's a lot of internal stuff, like not stuff that other people are necessarily going to see, but it's a lot of questioning. And then I'll, I'll research until I've killed it. Like I'll read all of the books. <laughs> I'll do all the webinars um, until I'm for sure. Okay. That wasn't the worst decision I could have made. Yeah. I think mine ends up looking very similar to that, but then I've kind of noticed or equipped myself with a secret weapon rather of when I went into consulting, I decided to just embrace being like my completely authentic self as a BCBA. So that involves my like quirky attitude. And I kind of (laughs) like, literally, I just got out of a session and I was like, well, not to be mean, but like, and then I was like, oh, you guys are probably going to think anything I say after that is going to be mean. But I was like, can you stop setting up the environment like that? You're not being productive. (laughs) (laughs) But I will stop and tell people kind of my thought process along stuff. And then I'll let them know, like, uh, I don't know if I love this. So let me like double check and then I'll circle back around and get back to you. I feel like that solves it for me in some way. And then like me and the parties I'm with, we can all kind of agree on something moving forward. I don't know. I just think it's better. And it kind of, I feel like it like levels the playing field. Like I'm not supposed to have all the answers for every single thing. For sure. You know, I think one thing that's really helped me is um, thinking about research and thinking about when research gets published, right? So like when a new journal or a new article comes out, one thing that like hit me and struck me one time was like, I'm reading this article And it's coming out at the same time that everybody else is seeing it. So when somebody's reading this article, literally everybody in the field, besides the researchers, everybody in the field is discovering this information at the same time. So whether it's me or Tyra Sellers or Linda LeBlanc or you know, any, any, or uh, anybody, right. Anybody who's reading this research right now is discovering this information at the same time. So even if I had a gap in my knowledge, they had this same gap in their knowledge at the same time, because they've, if they even read it. Right. And um, that was a kind of an eye-opening thing for me. It was going like, you know, because science doesn't have a finish line, you, everybody is learning and continually learning as you go, as long as they're taking the, making the effort to do it. But then I catch myself I'll say something, I'll explain something, I'll break something down, I'll, you know, do whatever as I'm describing some some concept or some principle. And I catch myself saying, does that make sense? And uh, if you ever hear me, anybody who's listening, if you ever hear me say, does that make sense? It's it's because I genuinely think I did not make any sense. It's because I, it's not because I don't think that you understand me. It's because I think that I don't understand myself and I want to confirm that I actually know what I'm talking about. So I'm like, does that make sense? Because I think that I messed that up a lot. Um, so if you ever hear me say that, that's where that comes from. That's my imposter syndrome kind of manifesting itself. That's me. I say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are different <laughs> um, it looks like we're similar i think it sounds like we're the same right. <laughs> so i'm curious what you're gonna say mariah we're always curious what i'm gonna say <laughs> um recently in the past few years i've probably developed like an adverse reaction to particularly women in professions or like highly educated individuals kind of I don't know, for lack of better words, like dumbing themselves down, saying like, does that make sense? So I personally refuse. And this is just like a hill I'll die on. But I refuse to say that because I know that I'm pretty good at articulating what I'm trying to say. Um, I am pretty good at like picking up on other people's communication styles and I'll try to match how they learn best. So instead of saying like, does that make sense? Because in my mind, not to be like a butthead, but like, I feel like I probably did a good job of explaining what I was saying so that it did make sense for the organism. So instead I'll say like, 
do you understand that or like <laughs> something sure. else other than like did I make sense just because I feel like that's I'm averse to that I think that's reasonable I mean I think I think if you have a particular learning history around that I think that makes perfect sense I think for me um you know I have been my entire life I've been told that I'm smart right and I I suffer from that thing where I, I'm told over and over and over again, I'm smart, that I'm so smart, I'm so intelligent. And you hear that. And I never bought it. I was kind of like, what makes me smarter than anybody else around me? But the problem I run into is because I'm told that I'm smart and because I sound like I'm smart, I worry that I speak over people's heads and uh, be, or not even over people's heads. But what I mean is like, I'll start using language. It's not maybe in their repertoire, um, you know, and I'll start kind of getting really technical and really like in the minutia of stuff when I don't need to. And, and, and it's not even that I forget my audience. It's just that I'll catch myself rambling. And I'll catch myself rambling about something. And then I'm like, wait a second, I've gotten way off track or I've got, I've gone too deep down this rabbit hole. And so I've got to stop and kind of like, if you'll catch what I'll, what I find myself doing is I catch myself before I go too far. And then I just try to provide relevant examples and metaphors. And I've struggled with that because I'm not good at metaphors. So that's kind of where, where that comes from for me is it's more so like I'm catching myself kind of not necessarily steamrolling a conversation, but kind of like rambling on and losing people. Which I probably just did, I realize. Actually, I mean, you didn't lose me because actually I'm learning. I feel like we have a very similar learning history. So here's kind of that kind of shows up for me. I also grew up like everybody, oh, you're so smart. Like we expect all these good grades, whatever. Even in grad school, there was um, a couple of our cohort who consistently are like, Danny, you sound so smart when you say this. And in my head, I'm like, I'm just, I'm just saying stuff. <laughs> it's sure. not that good. <laughs> But because of that, I feel like comparison comes with that a lot. So if I'm told I'm smart, I'm looking at other people who I think I are smart. So for example, like Shane, I have two of your books sitting right next to me <laughs> that I've been like <laughs> reading through. I've been in your webinars before. So to me, to hear you say that, I'm like, no, 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 Shane's the smart one. Like he says stuff and it, it sounds good. But so then I'm in my head, like, so is that what I sound like to other people? Because that's weird. Well. And so, so to add to that, like part of my learning history is also that I hung out with people that would do very dumb things. So like, and I was also part of a crowd that would do very like irresponsible things. Like I think of, you know, I grew up in the generation where jackass was everywhere. So like for a long time, we were jumping out of cars into bushes on the side of the road, just thinking that that was like a normal thing, you know, or like wherever, whatever store we would go into, we would try to see what we could get away with shoplifting and stuff. And so it was like always doing dumb things when we were kids. And I kind of go back to that. I'm like so like you're telling me that the kid like I, this kid this kid that literally jumped out of the back of a pickup truck into the hedges on the side of the road just to just for entertainment just for fun that's the kid that you're telling me is the smart kid like it's a it's it's a weird it's like it's 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 very much so that duality of like holding two truths at the same time where you're like i don't understand how any of these things mesh but here i am in the single person in single learning history it's a very strange experience mm -hmm. that dichotomy is wild relating back to like you guys being told you're super smart I feel like I never got told that so <laughs> oh, really <laughs> sorry <laughs> well that's great you get you're spared the anxiety that comes along with that yeah I mean I've I create plenty of my own anxiety so sure but I, I feel was reading... like oh sorry Danny do you want oh I was just gonna say I was reading a study the other day that was talking about the correlation between like kids who were in like gifted and talented programs and like the rate of burnout as adults. And it's, it's pretty high, but if you were a kid in those programs, then that's not surprising. So you've been spared like was true. my point. <laughs> yeah. I was going to relate to like how a lot of gentle parenting content today tells you like not to tell your kid they're smart and oh, to really? just like avoid it at all costs. Yeah. Because I, think I hadn't it, heard that it's like resulting in the same thing. If you're, if your expectation is putting this kid telling them that like, you're like super smart, you're exceptional, then they already feel like they have to achieve like great stuff or any mm -hmm. like minute off rail. You just feel like a failure, which isn't realistic. Yeah. Like people fail every day and failing mm -hmm. is a part of learning that helps you actually progress more. Well, and, and to that point, like, I think what and I could, I can 
from my own experience, what ends up happening is you're told you're smart. And when you do fail, you don't have the tolerance skill to accept that because your goalpost is that you're smart, right? So like what ends up happening is like, if I fail, then I'm not smart and everything that I've ever been told is a lie. So everybody's been lying to me and that's how you end up with imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, essentially that's like, you know, like failure, failure is it's like, and it's funny being a scientist and knowing that, right? Like as a scientist, you know, like you're going to fail, like you're going to mess up. There's going to be every, like, you know, for every one experiment that works, you've got 99 that don't. And so like, so coming to grips with the idea of science being an exploratory, like you always learn something from that has been like super valuable for me. And also learning the the power of, I don't know, has been incredibly, incredibly freeing. Um, but I still have that voice in the back of my head where it's like, if I don't understand something right away, I give up on it because I'm just like, I don't understand it. So why would I learn it? I'm not smart enough to understand it. And that's something I've done several times with concepts and behavior analysis, where I went to go learn something. I was like, I don't understand that. I'm done. Goodbye. Uh, and I'll leave it. I'll leave it at the door. I'll just, I'll just give up on it, which is like, not a healthy thing by any means, but it is something that I have learned as like a reaction to that stuff for me. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I feel like also smart is not like an objectable, measurable expectation. So when I think of like, oh, Danny, you're so smart. Like if we're in school, right? Teenagers or whatever, I'm getting A's. That's expected. That's not smart. That's baseline. So if I'm smart, I'm supposed to be above that. And I could see that bleeding into your professional life as an adult too. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing well at work. That's baseline. That's expected. Smart should be something else. I should be publishing. I should be speaking. I should be, I don't know, some celebrity BCBA or something, which is just not (laughs) realistic (laughs) for anybody. And the idea of a celebrity BCBA is so funny to me where it's like, okay, you're the, that's the equivalent of being like the popular kid in high school, like, Mm -hmm. like go anywhere else and nobody knows who you are. Like, like even Pat Fryman, who I would argue is probably the most famous BCBA and has done work in like a lot of different areas is still really only famous in certain circles. So Mm -hmm. you kind of, it's, that's always a funny thing to me, but you're right. Like I think, and I think part of the challenge comes in too, where you are put in a situation as a treating professional, as somebody who is in charge of treatment, that like you are responsible, you're the expert, you're supposed to be the smart one. Like people are coming to you for answers consistently and you're like, I don't have answers for this. Um, but you're getting paid to have answers and you're getting paid, there's an expectation for that. Uh, and so it's it. there's a lot of contingencies that make it so um, this, this idea of like, the anxiety and the imposter syndrome stuff that kind of bubbles up. Like it's, it's, it's the field of behavior analysis is, is just ripe with that stuff. It's, it's pretty fascinating that more people don't have it. And maybe people do, I don't know. Maybe people don't talk about it because they're afraid to be out as an imposter. <laughs> I mean, that might be a thing too. Not me literally just Googling who is Pat Fryman. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly. <laughs> I mean, but that's 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 why I laugh. It's like, it's like when people like I've heard I've been at conferences and I've heard people whisper like my hearing is bad, but I hear people when they don't know how to whisper and they're like, oh, my God, it's my hair. I'm just like, y'all like just say hi. I'm totally good with that. Like, but also I'm just a human being like I'm wearing I'm literally wearing sneakers and jeans to a conference like you can talk to me. I'm fine. So it's just it's it's always a very funny thing to me. I try to be nice. I try to not to diminish people when they do that. Like I try not to be like, oh, you, you know, but um. But it's, it's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Like, I'm just a person just like everybody else. Like, I, I fuck up all the time. Or I mess up all the time. I'm, I realize, we're allowed to use profanity on here, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I fuck up all the time. Um, like, it is astounding how much I fuck up, so. That's a good point that you mentioned you would just be at a conference wearing, like, typical jeans and a t-shirt because me embracing, like, my authentic BCBA self, I just roll up in, you know, whatever I'm wearing. But I feel like, suddenly people think that's you know probably more appropriate for like your client sessions i'm not gonna like be in a three-piece suit like hillary clinton or something and expect you to (laughs) like do actually (laughs) please do expect you to do something wild but then suddenly it's like oh i'm going to a conference like I i can't wear this stuff i would wear on the floor and it's like no you can you can still be professional in jeans there's plenty of other professions But I feel like that in itself would be a cause for imposter syndrome. Like, do I need to look a certain way just because I'm by all my other like colleagues? Like, no. Yeah, I actually love that you said that. 
Yeah. And I, and I think there is, and I think there is like a certain allowance with that too. So I, I will say there are like, and, and one of the points that you have in here is about white men being the worst. And I will say that like, and I, and I, and I'm, and I'm, I want to hit on that because I think that like, I think that for me, I can show up as my authentic BCBA self, partly because I have the privilege to do that. Like I can, sh- I like, there's no, like, there's almost no expectation for me to show up knowing like I'm covered in tattoos. Like I've got a big beard, my light, my hair is long, which has not always been like, that's not always my, been my professional style, but like I can show up and kind of do that and get away with it without as much social currency to lose. Right. So, so I think that is an, a really important thing where my authentic self has less to lose um, from doing that. So um, you know, I think that's, I think that's a great, I'm glad that you brought that up because I know that I can get away, get away with it. I know that not everybody can. Since Shane brought it up, white yes. men are the worst. Since yeah, let's unpack that. Yeah. Since <laughs> Shane brought it up. I think my whole point leaving that in the notes, um, unintentionally I'll add, but I just thought it was funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, is really that the majority of the BCBAs in the field are females. But yeah, then it's like, like 91%. Right. And then the other minority percent is males, but it still seems like that minority percent is the part that publishes the most or is doing the most research, the like talking head of the field versus all of these women who are like mm-hmm. doing all the other shit. And I mean... Let's get real. It's mostly white men. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. I mean, when you look at when you really look at the demographics, like, I mean, that's I think that's an academia issue, like Mm -hmm. because I mean, most of the research is coming out of academic places and stuff and and whatnot. But like, uh, I think where I go with that is like it's it's not even so much that it's that like the ones that are the talking heads or the ones that tend to be the ones on the forefront are like fucking dorks like they're not nice and they get themselves in trouble and they're mean to people and like they put themselves up on a pedestal and it's like like you need to like like it's not good for dissemination and it's not it's not endearing you to like making people like the science and stuff so but yeah i think i think you know overall as a general rule white white men are not great i mean historically that's been the case and so I don't think you're wrong on that. Um, so I, I fully, I actually fully support and embrace that. Um, not, not being the worst, but accepting that, like, I benefit from things that people don't, you know, and I think that goes back to like, I mean, it's a simple thing. It's, it's simple stuff, right? Like it's as simple as showing up to a conference dressed however I want without somebody saying something like nobody's ever, ever com- commented on my hair about my hair being unprofessional Nobody's ever told me I dress unprofessionally. Um, I've had people give me anonymous feedback on that, but it's like one out of like several hundred, you know, and you're kind of like, okay. Yeah, and anonymously. <laughs> so it's like, all right. You know, I've had people that have done that, but I've never had somebody come up to my face and be like, you're being very unprofessional right now. Um, you know, and I try to be sociable and kind when I'm in places. I try not to be like mean and like, I'm not, I try, I'm, I definitely try to be just nice, but um, you know, I've never had that experience, but I've heard of people who are, you know, I've heard of, you know, like women of color that are showing up that are like told that their, their hair is unprofessional. I've heard of like men icing out women from like different conferences and stuff. And like, so yeah, white men are the worst. Uh, it, it's consistent. It's consistent across fields. Um, but you know, it happens a lot in our field, unfortunately. And I think the reason that we had started talking about this the other day, like we didn't just say white men are the worst just for fun. Um, but to relate to it, but, yeah, we might have. <laughs> we probably <laughs> did, but to relate it back to imposter syndrome, I think it's such a weird situation in which like most of your colleagues are women, but most of the people you see are men. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as imposter syndrome goes, it's like, it's hard to find an example to look to if you're looking to like, get ahead or if you're looking for like you said those talking heads because you're not necessarily going to see somebody who looks like you if you are somebody of a minority or if you're female or something like that and kind of feeds into oh well I'm not a white man so can I present at conferences (laughs) and I imagine that'd be really intimidating if you were the only person of color or the only woman in you know on a panel or something well and I think and and I'm glad that you said that I mean I think I think you know, conferences like Weba and Baba are like coming a long way to like mm-hmm. make that a thing, like make representation yeah. a thing. And I think that's really important. And I, and I fully support like 
go to those conferences and don't go to ABAI um, for any reason because ABAI is terrible. Um, Say it again. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah, I, I got no problem saying that. Like ABAI is terrible. You shouldn't go. shouldn't support them. Um, but I think, you know, when you think about like, and I've, I do a lot of work around this. Like, I think about this a lot because especially over the last few years, like, um, with a lot of the movements that are going on and, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time, I, you know, like I mentioned before, I spent a lot of time reading and like, for the most part, people see my reading list and it's like, oh, good. You're reading Kurt Vonnegut getting it or whatever. But like, I do like to read stuff like, um, you know, like, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who is like mm-hmm. incredible. How to be an anti-racist is one of my favorite books ever. Um, and it just talks about like the systemic issues that go along with this. And, you know, when you dive down into it and, and there's one, one year that this really made me think about this. There was one year where I presented at FABA and I was like on like five or six different talks because like it, people were like, you should talk about this or you should be on this panel. Da, 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 da. And I thought it was a really fun year, but I was exhausted. Like personally, I was exhausted. But then, you know, I started thinking about it. It's like, okay, so like I'm another white guy taking up a space for somebody who could be presenting that's not a white guy. And I did that multiple times. And so uh, if for folks who have gone to conferences and have not seen me present over the last few years, or you've seen me co-presenting, it's because I'm trying to like make space for people who would not normally do that. Um, and I'm not doing that as to be like, well, look who pat me on the back. But like, the truth is I have an obligation to say, okay, I, I already have a seat at the table. So let's make room for it. Let's, let's build a bigger table. Like let's bring other seats up here and do that. And I think um, people who are not doing that work don't typically recognize that. I, and I think that's, you know, and again, I've got a long way to go. I am certainly not the, the, the ally. I'm not even gonna call myself an ally. I'm not certainly not that person. Um, but I do think it's important to recognize that and do, to do the work to undo some of that. Um, I'm really, and plus I'm really tired of seeing a bunch of white dudes present. They all say the same thing. And then most of them are boring. So yeah, that's why why when I go to a conference, I really go to the city. (laughs) Yeah. I don't blame you. I mean, I, I think, I think again, like, I think that there's, I think there's a lot of, you know, it's all opportunity. I think that's what it comes down to. It's like, you know, you know, white men are afforded all these opportunities. So of course they're the ones that are presenting and it's very easy to be like, you know, like I I've put in, I put in talks and I could be like, I'm going to talk about this. And people are like, okay, you're Shane. Uh, So I'm like, Okay, like it was that easy. You have no idea what my content is or what I'm going to talk about, but because I am this person or have, you know, whatever going on, like it's very easy to me to do that. But for other folks that don't benefit from those same things, you know, there there's multiple barriers. I I always think of like in my program, in my PhD program, we did the privilege walk. I don't know if you've all ever done the privilege walk that 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 type. So basically, it's an activity where <clears throat> everybody lines up on the same line, and you take a step forward if you have had this experience. Like you had more than 50 books on your bookshelf growing up. You can grow a mustache like those. It's things that are out of your control, but you can't, but you take a step all the way to the end. And those of you who made it to the end of the line or the finish line, you tend to be the most privileged and white male. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so, yeah. And so I for sure made it to the end and there were my, I had white friends who, you know, that did not make it because maybe they didn't benefit from like socioeconomic status or anything like that. And there's, there's lots of things that, that play into that. Um, but I'll never forget the, my cohort, my group, there was a, a pastor who was just like really nice guy, very well-meaning. He had made it to the end and he, and somebody, you know, one of the professors was asking like, what do you do in this situation? And the pastor was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet my friends who, who don't have the same privilege and I'm going to go to them and I'm going to be there in solidarity with them, which in, you know, on the surface sounds really great. And the professor was like, why wouldn't you bring them to you? Like you have more privilege. Why wouldn't you bring them to your space? Why wouldn't you bring them up? Why would you give up your privilege? Why wouldn't you give them more privilege? And that stuck with me. And ever since then, I've always thought about like, well, I'm in this space. How do I bring people to the table? Um, And and I'm always trying to figure out ways to do that and trying to listen to people who are having those experiences. So um, I'm trying to not be the worst, but, you know, I still recognize that that's a thing. I would say just do the work. That's, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you just got to do the work. I mean, uh, at least be willing to do the work and then you're already kind of like taking a step in the right direction. Or even accepting that there's work to be done. Mm. Yeah. That's a really great place to start. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just like take a second to go, you know what I should probably do is read a little bit about this thing. Like that in itself is a, is a good step. I mean, even if you don't like to read at, at this point in the internet, you can get online and there's lots of really great creators posting educational content about things like that. Very easy yeah. to find. 
very easy to find. So, and, and again, I think, I think part of it is like, if you are in a position to do that, you, the onus is on you to do the work to build people up. I mean, like, you know, I, I do enjoy doing speaking gigs and I do enjoy doing that stuff. Like that is something I'm very passionate about, but I, I, I what I really actively try to do is shout out people who have influenced me that are not just white men, um, like share research that is not just a bunch of white men. Like I try to really do that. I try to actively do that in my supervision and my, in my talks and stuff too. Um, and then if I'm speaking at a conference, I always try to like, wait for somebody to be like, Hey, you want to speak with me? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do that with you. You know, I try not to like be the first person to put something in to be like, I'm going to do this. Like I try to wait for that to be a thing that comes to me i love that i just i'm you know and part of that comes from the fact that i'm like six foot three so i don't like i already take up too much space i don't want to take up any more like you know even hypothetical space yeah i mean i'm i consider myself vertically challenged <laughs> so i'm like well danny didn't we just decide that we were like a half an inch apart yeah something like that so we're pretty close Danny's down here with me. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's like, that's the thing. It's like at a concert, I'm going to stand in the back because I don't want to, I don't want to block somebody's view. I think a lot of that in general comes from like people's lack of self-awareness though. I think everybody could benefit from higher self-awareness, but then I don't know, is our high self-awareness giving us imposter syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I I don't I think it's one of those things where, you know, the I think that there's like kind of an interesting culture going on right now where there is an expectation for everybody to do better on a certain level and everybody to be at that like higher that higher evolution, right? That higher space where we we like we know better, we do better, and we're supposed to be at this level. And I don't think that there's a lot of grace to make mistakes. And so, like, what ends up happening is we do, and I think Danny brought this up before, this idea of comparison. So, you know, you see somebody who is doing good, who like, you know, I like I said, I put a like people like Dr. Carl Hart and like Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, I put them up there as like, okay, like I I thrive to be this self-aware and this educated about these systemic issues. And like, I want to talk about this stuff and do this, but then I'm like, I'm nowhere even near close to that. And so now I'm doing this comparison thing. And I think it's not necessarily imposter syndrome because I'm not in a space to, to like, like nobody's asking me to speak about like race relations or like systemic racism, right? Like nobody's doing that. Um, but there is this piece where now I'm doing comparison, but I don't even have the imposter part. Like, I'm just like, now nah, I'm just not good enough. Like, so there's a different, it's a whole different set of issues that comes up. And, and so, you know, I think that there is something worth, I think there's something to be said about being able to take a moment to reinforce the progress, like reinforce the effort, um, you know, or at least recognize the effort. Like, you know, I, I think there's something to be said about that in there. I just don't know how to say it or, like what that looks like or like what's the appropriate level of that. I, I don't really know. I think a challenge of like maybe not knowing what to say for that is the goalpost for that always seems to be moving. Like you, yeah. you're never going to hit a real end goal and be like, ah, I'm like awesome now. <laughs> I've, I've awoken. Yeah. <laughs> I think it reminds me of, there's a book by Dr. Mark Batane called um strategic nonviolent power and it talks about how the like like resistance movements and protest movements often fail because they base their reinforcers on other people's behaviors and contingencies so like what will happen is like some resistance movement will base its reinforcers on changes in government and what'll end up happening is the government won't change so the resistance movement the resistance movement will fail because it's not capturing reinforcers and so I think of it like from that perspective of like if you are going to kind of continuously gain in cultural humility or any of those spaces, like you're going to kind of do that work, you have to base your reinforcers on your own behavior and like your own outcomes. You can't base it on the outcomes of somebody else accepting you because there's good, it's, it, it, like it may never come. Like it's always uncertain if you're doing a picnic analysis, right? So, so thinking about that, I think that's where I come into it. I go, okay, well, I'm going to do this work. I feel good about doing this work. I seem to get some reinforcers or I can recognize some reinforcers from this work. Um, but I am, I also recognize that I'm never going to be perfect about this. So I'm going to keep learning about this work. And I think that's for me has been the most helpful thing. It's like kind of basing my behavior on reinforcers that I can manage, if that makes sense. It's tough though. It's tough to be able to like stop and think about that and recognize that and plan for that. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. That's why not everybody does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And not everybody has that motivation. I mean, I just I I come from the motivation of like I don't ever want to harm anybody. Like I just actively don't want to harm anybody. And so like it really bums me out. Like it really bums me out when I have have like either intentionally or unintentionally hurt somebody. Like it, it's it's devastating to me. So I really actively try not to do that. We wish everybody felt that way. I can't even say that I do that. <laughs> Mariah trolls people on the internet for fun. So we all know this about me, though. <laughs> I troll people I know. <laughs> That's true. You do. Uh, I mean, it, it pops up at me, too. Like, I do I do have that moment. And then, like, sometimes I'll feel remorse about it. Like, I'll say something really sarcastic. And then later I'll be like, oh, that was mean. I shouldn't have said that. So I've what I've tried to do is, like, figure out how to be sarcastic without, like, hurting somebody's feelings like if that makes sense so i don't know I, it's been a real challenge i would never <laughs> i say that's a skill i feel like a lot of my clients could learn uh-huh uh-huh figure out yeah. how to teach that and then do like a webinar on it or something <laughs> good lord if i if i can figure it out i will definitely keep you posted but i have not i have not gotten close yet <laughs> Everyone would be signing up. Make it a CEU. Make it an affordable CEU. <laughs> How to CEU. discriminate from like hurtful sarcasm to just like funny sarcasm. Well, there was, I saw, I read some study where they said that like, uh, so when it came to feedback, they were saying that when you have a good relationship with somebody, sarcastic feedback, like sarcastic corrective feedback tends to be more effective than positive kind feedback. So like they were saying like in the study that like the people with good relationships prefer the sarcastic correct the feedback yeah i mean you have to be funny or otherwise no one's going to remember what you're saying sure yeah and you have to be good at it like you can't just be mean you can be like oh that was really good like and you know somebody got hurt and you're like okay well that's not helpful you know yeah right and the I rapport mean... <laughs> definitely has to be there but i could i can see that like i have people in my head that i'm like yes they need sarcasm <laughs> mm -hmm. you had touched on kind of knowing your audience and like when you're losing them because you're using too much jargon and stuff but after a while, especially if you're like working with DSPs, direct support staff or RBTs or somebody, even like your colleague, you're going to you're going to start to match how they're speaking. And then it just like opens up the conversation a lot more. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I wouldn't necessarily talk to like a supervisor like that, but I'm probably pretty resistant, whereas I've never really liked any supervisors before. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, you know what it's like is um, if you look at improv comedy, one of the things they say is like, you, you learn yes and, right? And that's how you keep the, the bit going and you keep the conversation flowing is like, yes, that idea and da, 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 which is really good for collaborative spaces and stuff too. So I think that's probably where you match your language is like, I, when you start talking and I realize that we can have a conversation at this level, I go, okay, yes. And da, 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 instead of being like, well, actually, and I try to really do the yes. And versus the, well, actually, because the, well, actually is a, but, you know, but da, 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 and it shuts down that conversation. So, um, so, which is really funny because I don't think, I don't find myself to be funny, but I take cues from improv comedy, which is weird. I don't know. I just, it's a thing that has stuck in my head. So. I feel like that could be helpful with like imposter syndrome though, that um, yes. And especially if, if you, if a reinforcer for you is like feedback from other people I'm thinking about, I literally just did like a staff training this morning and it's always a little awkward at first, but as we go on, I'm getting a lot more uh, like verbal signals. They're talking to me. I'm getting a lot more like nonverbal communication, head nods, that like look of like, I know what you're talking about. And that helps me feel more confident Whereas if you just do like a training or a talk or something and nobody's looking at you, everybody looks like their eyes are glazed over. You're just like, okay, am I not making sense? Am I, mm -hmm. <laughs> what am I talking about? I had to do recently, I had to do a 16 hour workshop on Ooh. sexuality and, and it was to a diverse group, a diverse training group. And there were 70 people and it was, it was made up of BCBAs and speech pathologists and direct care supports. And the best way, the best thing I could have done is I could have made all the jokes in the world. I could have done all that, but I had 70 people that I had to like maintain their attention. So every hour we did a movement break and uh, I got that from Nick Green. If you, if anybody ever follows Dr. Nick Green with behavior fit, um, he does some really great work on this. And so we did movement breaks literally every hour and we were able to keep on track 
get the, the whole training done and really get through it without too much. I didn't see too much yawning, which was really nice. On the movement break thing, I've actually run across some science before that says if you're just moving for like five minutes per 60 minutes, that your happiness actually increases, which I thought was five minutes, an hour, so minimal. And then you're like, oh, why do people just like sit down for eight hours a day? (laughs) Right. Well, and and that's like the, I believe that uh, Nick Green did his dissertation on this specific thing um, where it was like just just the, the ability to like get up and move for a few minutes is super helpful for like task engagement and like a few other things too. So, oh, Danny, you want to talk about your fun fact from psych today? My fun fact from psychology today was that 75% of adults think they get imposter syndrome. Do we fun think fact. that's a fun fact? I mean, fun, fun fact, is subjective. So, yes. I mean, fun fact if you think you have imposter syndrome, you're in the majority. So, like, maybe that's comforting for some people. Or if you think you have imposter syndrome, you're not unique. I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, yeah. What does that, what does that mean? If everybody has it, then nobody has it, right? Like, it's that, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? It's, it's the equivalent of being like, you know, 75% of people have hair. So, it's really, it's not as big of a deal as, we think it is but i think part of the problem is we don't talk about it because then people get like embarrassed or intimidated and so you don't know that you're not special (laughs) right right (laughs) You're, you're not wrong i mean i think that's exactly it i think the more people talk about it the more we normalize the i think and it's not necessarily and i think for me it's like not normalizing imposter syndrome it's normalizing not knowing things and Mm -hmm. like being okay like that's a normal thing to not know things um and i think that's the thing that i keep coming back to is like we would experience the symptoms of imposter syndrome which is by the way not a real thing like it's not like a it's not in the dsm so you can't it's get like diagnosed a made with up phenomenon it's a made up yeah. phenomenon that like everybody experiences so it's part of the human condition but like you know, it's just, if we normalize just kind of saying, I don't know, every now and again, people would probably feel a lot better about it. I think a lot of people are starting to do that, but it's one of those things where, you know, I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like we just got to have more conversations about it and learn to be okay with not knowing things. Do you guys have any strategies for like combating it when you do find those feelings coming up? Um, I was going to say, if anything, I've learned from talking to you guys is that I probably don't have as much imposter syndrome as I initially thought I probably suffered from. That's good. You're welcome. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. (laughs) I mean, I definitely feel like it's still there, but I also think a reason why we're probably not openly seeing like imposter syndrome day to day is that I I wouldn't say a lot of the times it's like impeding us from continuing to do our job. Like we're still going to, we're still going to like assess and like do something with the problem that's present. And then, you know, we're going to hide and overthink about it before we go to bed and then not sleep. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. I think, um, you know, for me, the way that I combat it, I think I go back to like, I think about, I think about people in our field. I think about, uh, where I was and where I'm at now. I think about kind of the knowledge base and stuff. And I kind of like try to reiterate that stuff. But I, I've taken a lot from the ascent kind of perspective where people are approaching you for things, right? So so like if people are consistently approaching you for things and asking you questions and asking for your advice, then maybe you're not as much of an imposter as you think you are. Like, I think that that's something that maybe is, is unique to kind of me being a public figure or speaking and stuff. But if people are constantly asking me to speak about things, then it's probably because I'm not necessarily like I probably know something. Right. Maybe that maybe that's a way to look at it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So you admit you're a public figure. I think people think I'm a public figure. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is a good point, though. Like if somebody's coming to you because they think you have the answers, they probably believe in you to get them closer to the answer that they need, at least, even if you're like Mm -hmm. not 100 percent there. Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, because I think I think that there are I think there are permanent products that make people think that they're they they're like, you know, I think, you know, like Danny said, like if you have if you have my books, then like I've written books, but that's and that's great and that's cool. But that doesn't that's not an indicator of like 
being an expert on something. And so I think if, if like, cause I, anybody could publish a book and nobody could buy it too. Um, and so I think if people are constantly seeking information from you with you to talk with you, like, I think that I think is a pretty good, like, I think if we're going to apply that to the ascent area where like people want to be engaged with you in therapy, then I think from an information seeking place, I think that that's a pretty good indicator that you're probably, you're probably doing okay. I like that you mentioned permanent products too, because um, that's something that I use personally, permanent products from my job that kind of confirm you're doing an okay job. That could be like my boss, I will, so we get like mail from work every once in a while, right? And our like headquarters is far enough away from me that they mail it to my house. So every once in a while, she'll include like sticky notes, like you're doing such a great job or so-and-so said, thank you for this, whatever, or like emails, I'll keep that stuff. And so on days when like imposter syndrome is really hitting hard, look back on those things and okay, this client's mom said she noticed a big difference this weekend and she thinks it's because of something I did. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Once uh, back when uh, back when Rate My Professor had the chili pepper thing, one time I got a chili pepper <laughs> and I thought that was pretty great. Like that was pretty Ooh. that was pretty affirming. Um, but no, like speaking of like part of products, I have uh, I have like the notes thing that you mentioned. I have like a mm-hmm. folder from like some team building events that I mm-hmm. keep pinned to my uh, wall, like my my pin board in front of me. That's got like those affirming notes and stuff in it, too. So every now and again, I'll check those out. I'm like, oh, yeah, like people mm-hmm. actually liked me at one point. Yeah, it's a nice reminder. When I was in a clinic, I did something similar. Um, Like I would write little fun things that happen with clients throughout the day and like keep it in a jar. I love that. It makes a difference. I mean, and you know, I think that's, I think that's like that. Cause ultimately if you want to really boil it down, imposter syndrome is just a false rule that you create for yourself. Like it Mm -hmm. is you saying, I'm not an expert. I it's, it's self-depreciating language. It just tells you that you are creating a false rule around something that other people are socially confirming is not true. Right. So like you are creating this narrative that is fiction and there are people around you that are telling you the truth and your skill is not necessarily diminishing the languaging around that your skill is accepting that other people are telling you a truth that you are not accepting. Right. So like really the skill that you're missing is accepting reality (laughs) because your imposter syndrome, the languaging around imposter syndrome is not reality. Um, Do you guys have any tips for other people who feel like they are struggling with imposter syndrome? Personally, I think perspective, I think you need perspective. Um, I think it's important to recognize that it's, you know, I always, one thing that the phrase that always helps me is like remembering that Skinner was never a BCBA. Mm-hmm. So like the remembering that when people get all up, like Skinner was never a BCBA. Uh, and then also just understanding that like everybody is subject to their learning histories. Like that has made me uh, as, as somebody who was like historically as a, as a younger person and a very angry person. Uh, Cause I would just get angry at people and like for people doing dumb things uh, as I got older and started being more like kind of contextually minded. I just remember that like everybody's got their stuff and everybody's got their thing and their unique experiences. And so that I think has been helpful is that your own experience that you're feeling imposter syndrome about is a unique kind of tapestry of stuff that only you have experienced. So you are the expert on the situation in this personal, in this kind of context based on your learning history. Um, And then when you just realize, when you start actually realizing that and not just saying it, but like actually realizing it, it's so freeing. Mm -hmm. You just kind of go, ah, okay. I think I'm okay. And I think the more people talk about it, I think the better that they'll get at that skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think people just need to remember that everybody's human. Like Mm -hmm. literally everybody that we put on a pedestal is human. Every single person. I guess my tip would be, and I mean, I kind of already mentioned it, but just, just embracing your full authentic self. So if you don't know the answer, just saying you'll circle back around. Yeah. I love that. I don't, I don't, there's power and I don't know. It sounds too easy. It sounds too easy, but I feel like it, uh, I feel like it also helps just build rapport. So I feel like it makes you come off more like a real person. <laughs> That's admitting true. you don't know. Yeah, 100%. And and there are lots of things that every person in the world does not know. Mm-hmm. Um there is like what is what does Bill Nye say? Bill Nye says something like you can learn something new from every single person you meet. Mm-hmm. Cuz that person knows something that you don't. Right? So and that's true for literally every person that you meet. That is so cute. Little Bill Nye. Bill Nye. I had to throw him in there somewhere. 
he is he i mean this is a science behavior is a science and he is the guy for it so um on an interesting tidbit the i've always thought i swear we got lectured on this somewhere down the line um of like people always referring to your professors as being an expert but an expert allegedly only needs like 10,000 hours experience within a specific field to be called an expert in it hmm. so when you divide 10,000 by 40 hours a week that's only like 240 weeks divide that by 52 that's like just under five years so essentially if you're anybody who's been in the field working full-time for at least five years or has had five years of experience over like whatever duration fuck it you're an expert (laughs) yeah there you go and i mean i don't know if this helps or hurts your metaphor but i read a study or something one time Basically, that number is arbitrary. <laughs> That's not oh, even real. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, ten, however you want. 10,000 is like so random. Who's like, oh, I only did this for five years. I mean, I always use the example of like, I essentially always bash BCBADs because I'm like, up until a few years ago, you didn't necessarily have to have something that like you were like an appropriate doctorate in. So I always say like you could be a BCBAD with like a doctorate in ultimate frisbee and just like bullshitting everybody. <laughs> like yeah. So I'm like just because you're a BCB BCBAD doesn't mean your applied skills or like your clinical skills are any more up to par than mine because chances are you're not like working one-on-one or have a similar client maybe you do like more admin stuff maybe you're just like a clinical director you know like our experiences aren't the same but your experiences don't necessarily trump me because of your ultimate frisbee doctorate (laughs) well and I mean, a perfect example of that, when I was brand new in the field, I was consulting on a case where we had a really complex learner that we were working with, and um, the they brought in this really, really well-known researcher in our field, and they wrote a procedure for this for this learner, and, um, and I was like, nope, this procedure's not going to work. Do this, 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 and I corrected this person's procedure. This person who I was like obsessed with their research and looked up to corrected their procedure. And my procedure was more effective than theirs. And I was like two years in and I, you know, so just to kind of like, I recall that being like, wow, like that was a moment where this person who is, has shaped the field did this thing and it didn't work, but I changed it and it did work. So, you know, you have these moments where like these, those kind of flashes happen where you realize like, oh, like every single person is human. And again, I, I go back to the idea that science, it, it, especially our field, because our field is a science-based thing, science doesn't have a finish line. So what we knew 10 years ago is not as true today. Um, there is new research and stuff. So like, as you kind of start to feel this stuff, you go, okay, well, as long as you're keeping up with the research, you're going to be fine. You just got to keep up with the research. I think we're at the bits and bobs now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think of the bits and bobs, Shane? I do. I've got one. All right. Who wants to go first? Not me. I don't want to go first. Looks like Danny's going first. I'll go first. My my recommendation is a book. This is the first book that I personally would rate five stars that I've read in like a long time. So I really liked it. Um, It's called Wayward by Amelia Hart. This is actually her first book. So it's like, in my opinion, really good for a debut novel. It is fiction. It's got multiple timelines going on. So one takes place in like the 1600s, one's like early 1900s, and one's more modern day. So if you like kind of historical fiction, you might like it. Um, It's kind of witchy, um, not like in an evil way, but the 1600s timeline, she's being tried as a witch. So kind of in that kind of way. It's very like female empowering, feminist. All the main characters are women. Trigger warning for domestic violence and sexual assault. But if you can get through that, it's a really great read. Not super long, like 300 something pages. Mm, I really liked it. I just know that there's no white males in there. Well, there is, but he's a villain. So I mean, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's on on par. (laughs) Yeah. So it's nonfiction. 
Right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll go for my bits and bobs unless you want to, Shane. Go for it. I recently purchased a Nod Pod. (laughs) What the heck is that? (laughs) What is that? Um, so their marketing says it's the weighted blanket for your eyes. Okay. Oh, like a sleep mask? (laughs) Essentially. So it's really like a rope mask thing. Okay. It's a tube with weighted beads in it, essentially. But there's different like modules and then each section has the beads and then the larger flaps on the end have a pull through tab instead of like a velcro secure uh like a typical eye mask i bought this because i have a typical eye mask which i do like um which usually stays in my like travel amenities like things i have to have access to on the plane sort of thing sure but there's a larger um velcro strip so then when your head's like hitting the back of the seat you're like okay this isn't actually that comfortable (laughs) (laughs) so i bought this weighted blanket for your eyes and they say that there is three minute magic when the gentle pressure is applied to the body it has an incredible calming effect the science behind this is known as deep touch pressure but you'll think it's magic so you're supposed to just give this weighted eye mask three minutes and then you like drift off into sleep. Hmm. I've only used it a few nights and there's two sides. There's like a Jersey cotton side and then more of like a minky side. The minky is obviously warm and the Jersey is cooler, but you don't secure it on your head, which is the very interesting part. You essentially just like lay on your pillow and then like drape it over your face. <laughs> It doesn't fall Wild. off. It does fall off. And they oh. they said, we're unbothered by that. We're here <laughs> today. <laughs> <laughs> they address that and they're like, we're essentially here to get you to sleep. And like, if we fall off in the night, like, no big deal because you're already asleep. If you wake up, you can just use us again. Fair enough. There, There is a little secure feature, like if you're sitting up on a flight or something where you can like strap it to your head i also thought this was beneficial because it's weighted and i've tested like trying to flick my eye <laughs> i lids open with it on doesn't work as well as you would like hope so hmm. your eyes are pinned down so it's pretty dark <laughs> dang that's wild okay. right what is your bits and bobs shane Ah, uh, so mine is an author. Um, I recommend everybody go out and read um, some any book, any book by Tom Robbins, if you have not read a book by him. Um, he is one of the most unique authors I've ever read. Like his his descriptions of stuff um, is, is just pretty, it's pretty incredible. And his stories are always really unique. Um, like you, it's, it's really hard to describe like anything that you would read by him. Cause it's very, like very eccentric and very over the top. So like the two books I typically tell everybody to start with, um, are either another roadside attraction, um, or fierce invalids home from hot climates. <laughs> uh, uh, another roadside attraction is about a guy who steals the body of Jesus from the Vatican because they were hiding the body because he was not resurrected. Um, and uh, they were hiding it to create a narrative and he steals the body from the Vatican and puts it on display in a flea circus in Seattle. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's exactly as bizarre as you would think it would be. Um, but his, his stories are always really strange, really over the top, really interesting and full of like artsy eclectic people. And uh I don't know. I just really love, he's one of my favorite authors and everything I've read by him is pretty incredible. I mean, um, you know, he's written even cow, even cowgirls get the blues, uh, jitterbug perfume. I, all still life with woodpecker. All of those are really just great, great reads. That sounds so interesting. He's so fun. He is so fun. I'm rereading, um, another roadside attraction right now. Um, uh, because and that's his debut. His debut mm-hmm. was a guy steals Jesus's body. So I love uh, that. <laughs> Yeah, that's how he started. That's how he entered the world as an author. So, um, yeah, he's great. He's he's probably one of my favorite authors besides Kurt Vonnegut. 
I'd be interested to see if any of your, like if you or any of your listeners, like actually read it. And then uh, I'm just super curious like what people think. I mean, he, his chaoticness reminds me a little bit of Neil Gaiman, but like maybe yeah. very, yeah, I love that. Yeah. So I'm gonna chaos, <laughs> chaos, chaos, like Neil Gaiman, um, more descriptive florist writing, I think. Um, okay. uh, so like, I feel like he's got in, in, in like a little bit of the wholesomeness of like Kurt Vonnegut. So okay. not quite as sexy as Neil Gaiman, sexier than Neil, than Kurt Vonnegut. Wild language, wild descriptions. Well, that should be interesting. Yeah. And let us know how what you think of it, like when you get there. Mm-hmm, for sure. How can our listeners contact you and uh, provide this feedback of Tom Robbins reads? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the best place is probably um, my Instagram at Dr. Shane T. Spiker. Um, so that's that's the easiest place to find me. And usually I post all my trainings, all my workshops uh podcast stuff usually goes up there so um all my professional stuff goes there but that's probably the easiest place thanks for chatting nice and simple yeah Yeah, thank you for having me this was a lot of fun thanks for listening today you can find us on instagram at behind behavior pod on facebook at behind behavior or if you're old school send us an email at contact behind behavior at gmail.com smell you later (laughs) 